You are listening to episode 31, Changing Jobs and Marketing for Yourself with Dr. Bethany Malone. And our group coaching program, Everything is a Negotiation, is open now. So check out BossSurgery.com with our first call starting June 29th. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I have a very special guest today. This is Dr. Bethany Malone. I've known her a little bit online over the last, I don't even know how long, but there is certainly a topic that I wanted to talk about today, which is using social media. And so she's using TikTok to help boost her business and improve the education of patients. And so I thought this would be a great topic to talk about, not to mention she has a really fascinating story personally. So Dr. Malone, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, So I am a private practice colorectal surgeon in Fort Worth, Texas, which is where I grew up. Um, I did none of my medical training in the state of Texas. So I have this weird thing where I'm a hometown girl, but I also medically am foreign to everyone here. And this community has a lot of physicians who trained in Texas or nearby in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex area. I am actually mixed race. So I'm half Laotian, half Texan really. Um, And I was raised by my mom as a single parent. So I was raised by Laotian immigrants, but I'm very white passing, especially my last name's Malone, no one suspects it. Um, So I have this unique background of having people advocate for me and care for me who don't look like me. We even, there was a time we went shopping and um, a woman tried to report me as being kidnapped because she didn't believe that my mom was my mom because our skin colors are different. Yeah, it's crazy. It's hilarious now, but terrifying at the time when you're a kid. Having a single mom, I had always had this attitude that school was my job. So I helped my mom out financially, but I went to private school. So I had scholarships the whole way through. And my mom would tell me the money we're spending is cheaper than the clothes I would have to buy you in public school so that you don't get picked on for wearing the same thing all the time. Um, So school was my job. School was how I financially helped my family. Um, And it really kind of started that hustle and work culture for me very early on, which, you know, drives you through college and medical school and residency and fellowship, especially. Um, And then once I started my attending job and kind of realized like, wait, there's smarter ways to work. It doesn't have to be time and energy equals output. There's ways to optimize the use of energy. And also it's okay to take your energy for things outside of work. I think that's so fascinating too, to think of the the idea of hustle culture starting so early. And, you know, I'm sure that's probably not necessarily a unique story in the fact that, you know, all of us are high achievers. You know, now that I think about it, I think my hustle culture probably did start in school where, you know, extra work is is rewarded and achievement is rewarded. And so we're always, you know, searching for that next, what's next. And so it's interesting that you recognize that and then also kind of broke the, the cycle there. So tell us a little bit about, you know, you discovering this as an attending and what happened. 
Well, and so a lot of it too has to do with current events. So that hustle culture is especially identified with Asians. You know, the term tiger mom, I got called a tiger mom in residency. My child was an infant. Um, But then when we saw all the rise in anti-Asian hate, I was just talking to my cousins, like, why are we working so hard? Like, this is how we get rewarded. And, you know, race was a big topic growing up where my mom would flat out tell me, your life is going to be easier because you pass as white. So this idea of white privilege was very obvious early on. And that being Asian doesn't help you in terms of being a minority. Like there's no affirmative action for Asians because Asians are high achieving. And so, you know, all these horrible things were happening across the country. And I was like, why are we making such a hard effort? Like, how about we back off and like start making life better for ourselves and let everyone else worry about their own thing? Um, And, you know, I had two children, two small, I had two under two when I started my job and my husband stays at home and that's very difficult with two toddlers. Um, So I just kind of saw that the way my work life was going was interfering with my ability to be present in my home life. And it was affecting my husband. It was affecting my children. Like my son would physically bar himself across the door in the morning as I was leaving for work screaming. And I was like, I can't live this way. Yeah. And I know you told me this setup that you were in a multi-specialty surgical surgical group, private practice in Texas, and you were taking like emergency call and general surgery call and trauma call and things like that. Um, So there was one month I counted the days and I was on ER call at some hospital or another for 20 days out of the entire month. And I was just like, that's not, you know, that's not sustainable. Right. And, you know, maybe I can physically do that in my thirties. I don't want to, I don't want to physically be doing this in my forties and fifties. Yeah. And so it sounds like that you had that, that like light bulb went off and said, I'm not I can't do this anymore. So well, it, it wasn't just, I can't do this anymore. It was, I don't have to do this. Yeah. Like residency is very easy because they own you and the time is set where it's like, I show up at six, my shift ends at 6 PM we're done. But you know, when you're at work, you're at work. And when you're at home, you're at home. And then as an attending, no one sets those boundaries for you. You have to advocate and set them for yourself. Yeah. And that makes sense, you know, where you made your decision next, because you did it from the power of saying like, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, like it didn't seem like you fell into the, the idea that you're trapped in your job that I think a lot of people do, you know, with loans and with all this and, you know, obligation. And I don't know. I mean, you know, my partner, uh, my previous partner is a very good doctor. He's very caring. He's a very skilled surgeon and he likes working that much and it works for him. It just didn't work for me. Yeah. And so then what happened? I took my oral colorectal boards, which this past year, actually, I was supposed to take them and the system crashed and they got canceled the day of, and then they had to reschedule it. And it was online too. So it it was a very stressful situation, but I finished taking my boards and I checked my phone and I had all these voicemails from the hospital because my partners weren't answering the phone to cover my patients while I was taking my boards. Um, So I immediately wrote my 90 day notice. And I love that too, because was that the first time it occurred to you to do that? No, it was not. I had, I had been thinking about it for a while, but I wanted to get the stress of my boards out of the way first. And I had actually already talked to a contract lawyer reviewing my contract and reviewing the possible financial implications for me before I sat for my board. So I had kind of all that 
background knowledge on deck before pulling the trigger. Yeah. And I think that was a really great point that you brought up before we started recording was like, how did you use the contract lawyer both in before the job and then after the job? So, um, in my fellowship, a lot of my, all my attendings were hospital employees, but several of them had worked in private practice previously. So when I was interviewing, I was, to, you know, they're all interested in whether you're interviewing for jobs. And they're like, yeah, you need to have a contract lawyer review your contract before you sign it. And that was an interesting concept because everyone else I worked with had always been hospital employees and you can't really negotiate that much with the hospital. I, I chose my contract lawyer based on convenience. I was just like, who can I work with long distance? Because that, you know, they can be the best contract lawyer, but I'm not flying back and forth as a fellow. Um, so I found one online and we, he looked through my first contract um, and helped me negotiate out of certain clauses. So I just used him again for my, to review it again when I said, hey, I'm thinking of leaving, like what, what's going to be the damage? And so what were some of the things that you learned in that negotiation, both before and after? Um, what tips would you have for someone? Um, well, one is you won't get something if you don't ask for it. Who cares if it's unreason- you know, unreasonable is in quotes, like just ask the worst that can happen. And as they say, no, and that's the same thing that would have happened if you'd never asked in the first place. Right. And I think that you're right, because when people are looking at jobs, they think, well, I can't ask for this, or I don't want to look, I don't want to look a certain way or, or whatever, but you know, you're right. There's no, there's no harm in asking. Well, and I think like things we want to ask for as women, we're taught that it's unreasonable, but how many male surgeons take a day off to go play golf? How is that any different than me wanting a day off to like take my kids to school? Like it, it's no difference at all. It doesn't matter what we use that time for. So in your contract, you negotiated some time off? I did not. I sh- and in private practice, it's weird because so like for hospital contracts, they give you a set amount of vacation days. And in private practice, it's really like, what can you afford to take off? Ah. Um, so there was no vacation days in there at all, but it's kind of like, if you're bringing enough money to pay your keep, then work as much or as little as you want. Got it. No. So you put your notice in, then what? So then I let other colorectal groups in the area know that I put my notice in. And I also spoke with a locums, uh, rep, I don't know what they're called, the representative about potential options and signing on with them. Um, Once I had let some of the other groups in the area know, I immediately got two interviews and then kind of went from there. And um, I liked your idea uh, that you mentioned before that no one um, will offer me a job if I'm employed. And it's interesting because it was a different mentality than people I've heard of being afraid of searching for a job when you don't have one. So what was it that led you to think that? And then did that work for you? So um, Fort Worth is a very closed medical community. Like everyone knows everyone, which also means like you don't want to cut ties with someone. And my partner as a surgical oncologist, like he does the metastasis and things like that. So he's someone you can't really afford to burn a bridge with. And he's very well-respected in the community. So it was really like, I don't think any colorectal group in the area wanted to be accused of stealing me from him. Ah, got it. Once it was already committed that I had left and he knew I wasn't talking to anyone before I left. Like he and I actually are on very good terms. We have a combo case coming up. Like we still refer patients to each other. So in terms of the split, we tried to make it as smooth and as amicable as possible. Yeah. What a great example. Um, And then that makes a lot of sense. 
Um, but that did off leave you with this idea of like, I don't really have a plan. So how did you prepare yourself for that idea of I don't have a plan? And what were the things that you told yourself that allowed that to be tolerable? I guess one was I looked at my finances and I was like, oh, I have six months of mortgage payments saved up in addition to my emergency savings that we can use to pay for all this other stuff. Um, So I knew like it wasn't something I had to figure out immediately. Um, And I just kept telling myself, like, you can always make more money. Like money is not a fixed item and locums is very lucrative and you don't have to work as hard or as often to make the money you make staying in one place. So I just felt like, you know, I'm not enough of an assassin where a locums company would tell me no. So I always have that in my back pocket. (laughs) You know, honestly, the, the, this exact same mentality that I had when I left is that my finances were secure. I knew that I had unlimited um, capacity for making money and I knew what I wanted. And so looking for a job and planning for a job, you do that from a position of strength and security rather than desperation and, and, and fear. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think that that's probably why you were able to navigate um, and find a job so securely um, because of, of how you felt about yourself, which is something that we all have control over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, And, you know, honestly, I ended up in a position at a uh, purely colorectal private practice with two other surgeons. One of them is planning to retire within the next five years. We don't do any ER call. Um, And it was really, and I think the staff are paid better and have more benefits than my previous office, which was also kind of a moral qualm I was having before. I was like, I, I think people should be paid more, like they should be paid for their worth or paid, rewarded for loyalty. That's also a great lesson too, is that you had this initial job that seemed like a good idea and it really clarified what you wanted, which was more of the colorectal thing and and time and and some of the other aspects too. So uh, I think also a lesson for people that are looking for a job is that you can actually, you know, start to understand what you want and then direct it. And that's how you find it. You had another great lesson too about non-compete and tail and nose insurance. So tell us a little bit about those two potential pitfalls and how you navigated them. Yeah. So, um, First off, uh, non-competes are very hard to enforce. So don't look at a non-compete and think that, oh, I must have this. But I also, you know, had an, I did not, but I was willing to take out a personal loan to pay it if it got enforced because that's how miserable I was. Um, So my first job, my first year salary was sponsored by a hospital and they do this needs-based assessment on the zip code. So because it's a needs-based assessment, the stipulations of it are that if you work for four years in this zip code, then your initial loan to cover your first year startup costs will be forgiven. If you leave the zip code within four years, then you have to pay back that initial amount at a prorated amount. So if you leave after one year, you pay more. If you leave after three years, you pay less. Four years, you're fine. Um, So because the hospital had sponsored my first year salary, I negotiated out of the non-compete clause in my first year contract with my practice. I think there's a great lesson is that nothing is written in stone and getting this advice. And I think you said it best before we started is that, you know, this is all about jargon and we're not trained for this. We're not paid for this. And then this is definitely worth hiring someone for who can navigate some of these things that we could, if we really wanted to figure it out, but we don't have to, as long as we could hire it, our time's worth more than that. Yeah, exactly. And it's learning to value your time. And up until working, As a resident, your time is not valued. 
It's like, oh, I have to wait on the floor to personally check a KUB for NG tube placement. No one does that in real practice. Like, like that's ridiculous. Um, but that's, you know, like I have to personally do all these things. I have to like go carry this out right now. Like this person has to be seen the minute someone calls me about it. And that's just not real life. Um, and so, you know, paying a contract lawyer, you're not just paying for their expertise, you're paying to get your own time back and have someone do a better job at it. Like there's plenty of things I could be doing, but other people are better at it. Got it. And I know that um, people may not be familiar with tail and nose insurance. And what was the difference? Um, and how did you protect yourself in that way? Part of this was I did negotiate for this in my contract and it wasn't upheld. But so there are different types of malpractice policies. And one is occurrence-based and the other is claims-based. And I don't remember which one is which, but one of them covers covers you for uh, issues that come up while you are employed by the practice. And the other covers you, if you get sued, you most lawsuits happen two years or more after the initial event occurred. So depending on your job stability or retirement, you may or may not still be employed by that practice. One of those types of claims covers you if you were employed when the medical event happened. The other type only covers you if you are still employed by the practice under which you worked when the event happened. Um, so I had asked to have the, I don't even remember occurrence or claims, which one is which, but I had asked in my contract and it was signed in my contract that I was supposed to have the one that includes as long as you were working for the practice when the event happened, it would cover it. And I got the other kind. Um, and I didn't fight it at the time because I was just like starting a new job, moving with my family and all of that. So when I was leaving the practice, I actually talked to a um, malpractice insurance broker about, you know, buying my own tail versus getting nose. And she was familiar with the company that I signed on for. And she knew like, oh, their malpractice insurance includes nose, you'll be fine. Uh, so nose insurance basically covers the tail from your previous employment. Got it. And so even people that don't have tail coverage can potentially negotiate nose coverage. And so right. you may not be we stuck with like a five figure insurance bill. Exactly. Which is important to know, you know, Knowing that I was willing to take on whatever financial damage happened or financial aftermath was good, but and it's easier to do that if you know what those numbers are going to look like. And I think negotiating from a position of strength of knowing that you're worth it probably helped you out a lot too, because you know we're not always open to these possibilities and even searching for these possibilities if we don't think we're worth it. Right. Then let's kind of transition to where, you know, obviously where you got my attention, like how you market yourself. And so tell us a little bit about, a, you know, your mental shift on like, how do you market yourself and what have you learned in the process? Well, so my big mental shifts happened during my fun employment period um, where I, and this is all based on your book club, where I read Bonnie Koo's book about women and wealth and just having the shift that, Hey, like, cause I was raised to say like, you should be doing things to help people. You shouldn't be doing things just to make money and just realizing that those are not mutually exclusive issues. Like if you do a good job, you should be compensated accordingly for it. And it has nothing to do with, like I'm not screwing people over and doing unindicated procedures just to make a buck. Like that's not what that means to be financially successful as a surgeon. And then reading Dr. Uno's book, EntreMD, where you know, just looking at, oh, most businesses spend 50% of their effort on marketing. We don't do that nearly that much as 
as surgeons or as physicians in general, and you look around and every other aspect of the healthcare system advertises, Band-Aid advertises, freaking over-the-counter dressing, and they have commercials on TV and ads online. Pharmaceutical companies advertise, and consumers can't even get their items directly. They have to go through us, but you know, just knowing like they have marketing research people who know that if they put these commercials on TV, patients will ask us for those medications and we will give it to them. Like if they have, they have a financial payoff from doing that. Hospitals advertise. You see, uh, one of the hospitals in the area just built this new tower, and it's in all the magazines and everything around here. But we as physicians don't market ourselves. Yes. And, you know, as the unofficial president of the Dr. Una fan club, I know that you and I share the same mentality, which is, you know, we don't want to be the best kept secret and, you know, it's okay to market for ourselves. And this idea that, that doctors shouldn't market, you know, that it's beneath us or a lot of those mental barriers or some things that we all have. And so once you kind of cross these mental barriers and said that, nope, I'm going to advertise for myself. I'm not going to be the best kept secret. This is going to be good for me and my patients because now I'm sending some messages that they're going to learn from, you know, so where did you go from there? How did you decide what platform to use and why? Um, So first I just thought of what my ideal client was, which is what Dr. Una says. And I was like, oh, colorectal surgeon, someone with a colon, rectum, or anus, or someone having issues after one of those items was removed. And thinking that broadly, that's everyone. And then I had this next mental jump of, oh, I am part of my ideal client demographic, which is huge. Like we don't think of ourselves as patients, which is probably why we are the worst patients stereotypically. But so I thought about what are the things that I don't like about the healthcare system or what I don't like about choosing a doctor or why I don't currently have a PCP. Um, And it's this idea that you don't know the quality of a physician before you walk into their front door. So you've already committed the time and money to making an appointment and visiting with someone. And you don't necessarily know if they're gonna be a good fit. And for most patients, you have no idea about the validity of their decision-making either. Um, And another side of that from the medical legal side, we're kind of trained that most lawsuits would be prevented by saying you're sorry after an adverse event, uh, uh, adverse event happens. So really lawsuits and protecting yourself legally have nothing to do with your medical decision-making. It's to oversimplify it's based on whether people like you or not. So giving people a preview of what I have to offer in the pre-op or post-op setting lets them know if they're going to like me before they even walk through the door and they can decide, you know, some patients want things really thoroughly explained to them. Other patients just want you to tell them what to do. I'm not the tell them what to do doctor. So if they want that and they know that that's not me before they step in my door, I've saved them a trip um, and saved them a visit. And I've also saved myself from trying to overcome barriers in the therapeutic patient physician relationship before they've ever, you know, I've saved both of us time. You know, so it sounds like that you bought into the idea of social media. And so then the next question is, is that with all the platforms that are available, I was really fascinated to see your decision-making when you decided which one to land with. So Askars is a huge proponent of Twitter. And I had tried Twitter initially and I just didn't like it. I felt like I was going down all these rabbit holes and it was so time consuming and like mentally, like felt like my brain was scrambled using Twitter. So I didn't really like Twitter. 
Um, and then I went to, and I was planning to start a YouTube channel. And so I first just sat down and thought, what are 20 topics that I could make a YouTube video on? I don't care if they're good or if they're bad, just write down 20 topics to see if I can do it. And I was able to do that. So I had kind of been planning, okay, I'll make this YouTube channel. And then I went to the um, ASCARS meeting this year and they, Zuri Morell is a private practice colorectal surgeon in um, LA and 90% of his referrals come from social media. Um, so he had kind of put up this slide about comparing the demographics and the feelings people have on different platforms. Twitter was 75% male and everyone felt angry. And I was just like, well, now I feel not so bad about not liking Twitter because it's a bunch of angry men on there and I don't need more angry men in my office. Uh, platforms like Instagram or TikTok were more um, gender equal and people tend to, tended to feel happy and inspired. And he also included LinkedIn. So kind of based on the analysis that he had his social media marketing team do, LinkedIn and Twitter were better for professional and physician to physician networking and Instagram and TikTok were better for um, direct to consumer marketing, which is really what it is for us. What a great assessment of all the different kinds, because I think that we tend to gravitate towards one or another. And I think that you well articulated, you know, which one seems to work better. And, and I had not heard before about Instagram and TikTok being more gender neutral. And it makes sense. Of course, you know, we haven't really mentioned Facebook. I think Facebook is the going thought is that's for old people, which is why I guess I'm on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, I'm in the, I'm a millennial, full millennial. So I've been on Facebook for 17 or 18 years. And when it started, it was really marketed for college students only. You had to have a .edu college email address. You could mark your classes and your dorm on there. And it was really meant to be a safe place to express yourself without your family. So it was like everyone posted all that, like everything that would make people now cringe about what is on social media was all that Facebook was before, where it's like everyone drinking at parties. <laughs> like, all this stuff now they're like, no, you can't hold a red solo cup, even if it's full of water as a physician on, on Instagram. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So I think Facebook is good for networking or keeping up with friends and family and people are using it professionally too, but good at marketing to people outside of your social network and Instagram's Instagram's owned by Facebook now but it really only pushes your things towards people who are some degree known in your social network whereas TikTok pushes the videos geographically so a lot of the followers are getting I have no idea who these people are and that's what we want we don't you know I do enjoy that my aunts, uncles and cousins like my videos and I feel that I'm helping them and offering them a service which otherwise morally or ethically, I wouldn't be able to do. Like we're not supposed to care for our family members, but you know, they're benefiting from seeing these things. So that's nice, you know, a nice side effect of this. Um, but yeah, like the Facebook, Instagram, it's limited to your existing social networks, whereas TikTok just pushes your videos. And it's so fast to like consume TikTok content. You just keep scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. You could end up watching 20 videos at a time before you even realized it. <laughs> so then you settled on TikTok videos and, you know, tell us how you approached the strategy of it, you know, being a busy physician and, you know, and being a physician, you know, surgeon mother, how did you approach 
your, like doing these videos in the time that you have, like what, what is a sustainable way and what's your strategy? Um, so first I've just committed like Mondays and Thursdays, I'm going to release a video. Um, and I'm going to do this for, you know, five, six months, see where I land and then reassess if I want to keep doing it. Um, but the way I typically, so I record ahead of time and I usually do it during nap time and my kids take naps in the middle of the day and my husband then gets a break. So I tell him like, Hey, do you need to leave the house and do something? It's fine. My kids are sleeping, so they don't need a lot of help. And because it's the middle of the day, the sunlight's really good. So I'll usually, um, record a few videos in the middle of the day with the blinds open. So there's sunlight in addition to the ring light to balance out any shadows. And usually I just kind of think of a topic and I have like a Sharpie and I write down a brief outline and then I just record the video and I'll do that for like two or four videos at a time. The first time I did, I was so nervous and it's like me alone in my bedroom. (laughs) I was just like had palpitations, (laughs) but then it, it gets easier with time. And so I'll record them, you know, on a Saturday afternoon or something. And then at bedtime, when my husband is putting the kids to bed, it depends on the night because my daughter is very easy to get to bed. She's the younger one. My son needs a lot of assistance. And most of the time he wants my husband, but sometimes he wants me. So if it's the nights that my husband is putting um, our son to bed, then I will upload my videos to TikTok and edit them with the TikTok editor and then save them to my drafts folder. So the nice thing with TikTok is you can edit and save it. You don't have to release it at the time that you edit it. Um, Another thing I learned about TikTok is that if you're uploading pre-recorded videos, they have an algorithm for pushing your videos and they preferentially select videos edited through their editor. So, you know, if like I've edited videos on iMovie or something on my laptop. And I was initially thinking I would do that, but then it's like, oh, TikTok wants you to edit it in their platform. And their platform is actually very easy to use. So I do the captions, I put a filter on, which normally I would not do, and then save it to my drafts folder. Yeah. I love that. There's so many lessons in there that I think I want to pull out just to emphasize is, you know, you kind of release the idea of perfection. I know that you mentioned TikTok, like no one expects you to be perfect. So there's one mental barrier that you overcome. And this, you know, the second was consistency of, you know, I'm going to do it here and kind of declaring ahead of time. And the third is like, you know, you had a nice system going during the day where the light's good. I'm going to record stuff and I'm going to have 20 in the queue. And then at night, you know, I'm going to, I'm working this around my life to where it's easy and sustainable. And, you know, you release yourself from this, the idea of perfection and and overwhelm. And I think that those lessons are things that are worth emphasizing. Yeah. And, you know, as surgeons, we love immediate gratification. I was telling, so I was telling one of my friends who's a musician and uh, a lot of my life is built off of being a fan of his music. I was like, I get the immediate dopamine hit of helping someone because I see the results. I was like, you record an album, you put it out, you have no idea how it helps or changes people's lives. I was like, your music helped and changed my life, but you never get to see that. <laughs> I guess you, he gets the, the dopamine surge and the excitement of performing, but you know, over the past two years, that's been really limited. So I think kind of consistently putting things out and not immediately seeing the results or getting a reward from it is difficult for us as surgeons. But you know, it takes me 10 minutes to make a four minute video. And that could help someone a year from now. Yeah. That's an amazing foresight uh, is to consider that too. And 
the most important thing too, when it comes to like these videos is that they will be around for a while. They can actually save us time if we build this resource that will help other people. Um, right. Like I have a four minute video that has 300 views, which is not that many views in terms of TikTok use, but how much time did that save me from giving that talk 300 times? And, you know, I can tell you like, like when I put content out there too, especially like because I have Kevin MD articles and some Doximity op meds. And when someone mentions something about imposter syndrome, I can send them my article or someone mentions something about overwhelm. I send them the article on growth days. Um, you know, it really saves you a lot of time. So the time that you spend on this content can can provide a lot of, of help in the future of saving time. And, you know, just like you mentioned too, is that you, the, you are gaining your prominence with your patients too. It's like you're becoming now a known entity rather than, I wonder who this doctor is that I'm going to see. And then when they look you up, cause they are looking you up, mm-hmm. uh, you can start to control what's out there. And the more you're out there in ways that you're pleased with, then, you know, it does nothing but help you. So that's the other side of it is that most people only look at the first page of Google searches. So if you're creating content, you control what's on the first page of your Google search. Right now, one of my first pages is a health grades where one of the reviews is an anonymous review that says, Dr. Malone, can you call me? And it's, that's a review. It's like that, (laughs) that kind of stuff is ridiculous. But you know, if my first page could be like, oh, here's how fiber helps you. Here's the importance of colonoscopy. That's much more productive. Right. And it answers a lot of questions that people have too. You know, I, I saw that your video on, you know, Cologuard versus colonoscopy and diverticulitis when she, you consider surgery. And I think, um, I remember there's something about like an itchy anus and stuff like that. Things that people don't want to bring up, but they can watch safely in their own home is, is another gift that we give to, to patients that even if they're not our patient now, they may be in the future because we built that credibility. Yeah. And, um, So one of it is, yeah, with what I work with, it's so embarrassing to ask about that people don't even know there are treatment options. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and we see this with other diseases too, where people have been living a certain way for so long, they don't even realize it's not normal. Um, And the other side of it, so I kind of look at recycling. So um, when I was growing up, there was no municipal recycling. If you wanted to recycle, you had to like carry your stuff to a recycling center, if that even existed, because it was Texas. And on Sesame Street, they always talk about reduce, reuse, and recycle. And the public library had a opened a recycling dumpster for you to recycle paper and cardboard. So I was 15 and I was driving and I would take all our recycling there. And my mom saw me doing it. And then I would come to visit from college and she was still doing it even after I had moved out. So I kind of see that as, you know, when you teach young people something, they do carry it to their parents and their parents do adjust their behaviors based on that. So, you know, even if you think TikTok is too young of an audience, a 25 year old can tell their parent to get a colonoscopy and show their parent that video or, you know, have a better understanding of diverticulitis and show someone that video to help explain it to them. So it kind of helps empower families to take care of each other, even if the person initially watching the video isn't the demographic you're after. I love your comment before we start recording about, you know, TikTok being like seen as like the teenage girl platform. But of course, as you mentioned, like the Beatles are the ones that showed us that like some of these teenage girls have a ton of power in spreading things virally to the world that can elevate us too. So I thought that was a really great example. Yeah. I think NPR did an article about it, about how teenage girls have repeatedly 
identified these huge cultural trends, but never get credited and never financially benefit from it. So I, you know, as a mother of a very young daughter, I just think, you know what, I want to support her in things she likes and not just immediately saying they're illegitimate. And there was also just a New York Times article that says there's a rising population of 65 plus TikTok influencers. So we are getting our, our older patients in there as well. Yeah. Oh, well, this is fantastic. Now, what would you recommend someone who is just, you know, trying to break through into this market of using social media to promote themselves as physicians, what advice would you give them if they're just starting? Um, So one would be to kind of put your own self critiques aside. I look at my videos now and there's, I always find a problem with one of them, but then I'll have like my aunt or my cousin say like, this was really helpful. Um, And, you know, we have this disconnect because we're around physicians all the time where we think what we have to say isn't that important or isn't that influential. But for the average person, this is new breaking information. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think another side of that is getting rid of that imposter syndrome and kind of pushing away the hierarchy of medical training. It's like, yes, I'm a doctor. I'm paid to give these talks to people one-on-one. Why isn't that just as legitimate to then put it on on the internet where other people can see it as well? Um, And I think the other thing is putting aside traditional views on marketing. So you know, Zuri Morel is a black man. He is an outsider in colorectal surgery. You go to a colorectal surgery meeting, there are very few people of color. Um, And he's been very successful building himself using outsider strategies. So what we're taught is the three A's of surgery, the available, affable, and able, go to doctor's offices to introduce yourself and hang out in the doctor's lounge. Um, You know, in an ideal, in an ideal world, I would have no acute inpatient consults and all my cases be elective and I'd always know my schedule. Like you don't always know your schedule when all you do is inpatient medicine. And the visiting other doctor's offices, like, yes, that worked for the old boys club of surgery, but we're diversifying. So we need to diversify our attempts at getting ourselves out there. Yeah. And it's easy and it's free. And all we have to do is overcome the imposter syndrome that's built into our our training, (laughs) our own sense of perfectionism and then just create a schedule. Yeah. So one of the um, speakers for the leverage and growth summit said he was a dermatologist in New York. And he said, I can get 200 appointments from an Instagram post, which is way more than I'd get from a billboard. Um, And when I drive my son to his preschool, there's a billboard and the way the fence next to the road is set up, you can only see it for like 10 seconds because the fence covers the billboard as soon as you drive over this hill. And I just think, wow, what a waste of money that specific billboard is when you barely see it long enough to read it. And an Instagram post is there for years. So you might get 200 initially, and then you get 50 a year later Mm -hmm. and it's free. Yeah, this is great. I think this is going to help a lot of people who haven't really thought about social media or maybe have some, um, you know, preconceived biases about it. And so I think that you're just an example of how this can be used successfully and helpfully. And all of your tips, I think, are really going to help people in the future. So what's next for you? Uh, I'm just building my practice. (laughs) My current practice is taking off faster than when I first started. And part of that is I am a known entity in the area. So yeah, just taking care of patients and, you know, having a life outside of medicine. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, you know, I even forgot to mention that your quote in Forbes too. So I have a feeling that we've only 
touch the iceberg for what Dr. Malone has to offer us. So I'm very <laughs> excited to see what you offer us in the future. Oh, well, thank you. All right. Well, thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening. If you want to keep up to date on what's going on in the Boss Business of Surgery series, then make sure to check out bosssurgery.com.